It's Tim Albright with Aviation with an Aviation special celebrating Black History Month and in in celebrating the uh, accomplishments, the contributions, and the stories of Black individuals in the AV industry. Uh, and with me is my very dear friend, Mr. Mike Blackman from uh, Integrated Systems Europe and Integrated Systems Events. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Tim. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, always glad to be speaking with you. Absolutely. And and I, I here's the thing. I, I, I've talked with you over the years and, and, and you and I have, inter- have spoken. We've, I've interviewed you a number of times and you, you have a slight accent. So you are not from the U.S., um, no, you, you, um, you're, you're from the UK, uh, and we can talk Actually, about. To tell, to tell the truth, yes, I was born. I was born in Guyana, South America. It's um, little uh, nation that sits below Venezuela and uh, next to Brazil. It belongs to the Caribbean. It's the only Caribbean nation that's not an island. And uh, I was born there. I left there when I was six years old, and I moved to London and grew up there. So I see myself as British, but. Um, uh, just to add to the confusion, I became a German citizen uh, a few weeks ago. So, but I managed to keep both nationalities. Well, and and being a you, when you were born in Guyana, you were a a um, citizen. And you can correct me when I get this wrong. You were a citizen of the British Commonwealth. Correct. And at some point in in the last fifty years or so, um, the UK kind of grandfathered in folks, and then you, that's how you became a full fledged. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but a full fledged no, case. Uh, it's correct. So when I went to the UK, um, I was uh, what was called a British Commonwealth citizen, and uh, I became naturalized in um, 1966. I went to England in 64, and in 64, 66, I became naturalized when Guyana became independent. So then I became a full British uh, citizen. So one of the things is, and, and you have a different experience, both from the a, a you know obviously being born in Guyana um, and and growing up in the UK as a person of color is still the UK and and again correct me if I'm wrong on this you were still a what uh, still a minority right um, in, in the in the United Kingdom um, so let's talk about that aspect and then kind of how you got into uh, into AV um, your mother was um, uh, a, a principal what we would call it in the US yes. a principal uh, headmaster. Uh, I believe was what what you call them on the UK, and so you were you know, obviously um, you know, exposed to education early on, but you still had some some challenges you know growing up in the UK being a person of color. Uh, absolutely, and um, um, I mean I must admit that I was probably sheltered a lot lot more than other people. And my mother had uh, a lot of uh, foresight and. Uh, the one thing she did is as soon as we arrived, myself, my parents uh, went to the UK um, a few years earlier to get settled because they thought it'd be easier to settle without us kids, myself and my brother. Um, And, you know, just to get settled and make sure they've made the right decision. They left myself, my brother with my grandmother. um, And I didn't see my mother for about uh, five years um, or six, four years. And then um, we, they were settled, they had their jobs, and um, my father had uh, gone to study again as well. He, he was a mathematician, and he studied to be a computer analyst. Uh, my mother was having a good career, and they sent for us, and we came and moved to the UK. And my mother had the foresight to actually say, look, you know, if we want to be successful, if we want to move on, um, we have to do something about our Caribbean accent. Um, so we had elocution lessons and, uh, 
uh, I hated this. Elocution lessons and English lessons when you're um, uh, when you're very young and all your friends are outside playing and uh, you're sitting at home, you know, learning. <laughs> um, but you know, she had goals. She wanted us to be successful. She wanted to actually provide us with the right tools to move on and uh, progress. Um, but it was a time when you know there were issues in the UK, um, and I think uh, you know we were very aware of that. Um, but it wasn't something that uh, um, you know there there were probably how can I say it? There were maybe some things that happened in my life where I could say, oh, you know, okay, um, that's a, a, a little bit racist or a little bit uh, you know controversial way I've been dealt with but um, I think I was lucky in that the school I went to was uh, quite multinational um, the neighborhood I lived in uh, was like that as well so but I lived in a part of London um, where you know we were on the borders of areas where maybe it wasn't uh, um, so prudent to go walking at night did your parents do that intentionally? Did, did they move you guys? And you said you were, they were settled there already when they sent for you. Did no. they settle in an area that was that was multinational, that was multicultural on purpose? I, I, I mean, I actually never, ever asked them, but I guess so. Because uh, when we first moved there, we lived with, um, you know, uh, in, in my culture, um, you know, anyone who's uh, uh, an, elder, an older person who's not necessarily a relative, you still call uncle or auntie. Um, and, uh, you know, this is someone we had no, uh, blood relationship, but we called her auntie and, uh, it was friends of the family, friends of friends of the family. And we rented, uh, uh the basement of their house to start with. And then we moved, um, to another place where we rented. And then eventually my parents bought a house. Um, so the first two places we lived, um, you know, it wasn't like I walked out in the street and I was the only black person there. There were, you know, uh, in the area, um, you know, there were, it was a mixed community. Um, I must admit, when we moved to the place where we had our first house, um, I think we were quite unique there. Yeah. Let's let's take the you know, black black men of the '60s and '70s as a young man coming kind of coming through, you know, university and getting into not just AV, but also getting into, you know, technology. Uh, because one of the things that you and I have talked about before is the fact that you were, you were instrumental early on, uh, especially in, in, in Europe, in getting the technology, you know, both from Microsoft and Apple and, and several others um, into, into the European market. How, do you, how did you go from, you know, Microsoft and Windows into, you know, the AV industry? By accident, just like everyone else. Yeah, I, you know, um, take a few years back. I studied uh, and I wanted to be an accountant, and uh, I took. Wait, a wait, 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 wait! You wanted to be an accountant? <laughs> yeah. Would you believe that? <laughs> no, I mean, not that you're not good with numbers. Don't misunderstand. Yeah, but you're the most dynamic accountant I will I would have ever met. met. Well. What happened was I took a I took a gap year and um, I traveled across Canada. I spent three months, uh, you know, just uh, doing some cool stuff. And I came back and um, uh, I had my place at university and they wrote to me and they said, look, uh, it's a four year course. It's a sandwich course. Um, and um, what you should do is write for your so a sandwich course. I don't know how you call it in, in, in the U.S., 
but you do one year out um, uh, as an internship. And um, they recommended that I actually started writing to actually get my placement from my, my internship before I start the course. And I wrote over a hundred letters and those are the days where you wrote everything by hand. Yeah. And um, I posted all these and uh, to various companies and uh, um, of the hundred letters I wrote or over 100, I had 10 replies. And of the 10 replies, I had two offers. And I started to think, wow, you know, it's this difficult to move on. Uh, but I, I was still thinking I was committed. And um, but uh, one of the companies who I'd written to also said, look, we don't have a, we don't know if we have a place for you uh, uh, in your internship. But if you'd like some work experience for the next six months uh, or so, um, we'd love to give you that experience. And I thought, why not? And that was uh, Reed International. And um, I loved the project work. I loved the, I was in the corporate consolidation department. So this was worldwide headquarters in Piccadilly in London. And we took the accounts from all over the world. They were consolidated in the different uh, groups. And then we would get the final consolidated uh, accounts for each group and put them into one set of accounts. And it was all project work and it was interesting. Uh, but then uh, one guy who was in the, uh, the bookkeeping department, uh, that's general accounts. Uh, he was sick uh, and had to be off for about three months. And they asked me to go into that department to uh, take his place. And I was struggling every afternoon to keep awake because, you know, it just wasn't challenging. And I suddenly thought, I am not going to spend the next four years studying to do this. And uh, so I started looking around and decided I dropped my course and uh, uh, started writing off for jobs. And I had an offer from the Financial Times. And um, I went for an interview and at the end of, they wrote to me after said, uh, oh, we thought you were really good, but we think you're too good for this job. And I thought, well, that's a nice way to say no. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they said, no, we've got another position we'd like to offer you. Um, would you be interested to come and interview for it? It's, um, uh, it has a little bit more money. And that sort of said, wow, okay, this is really cool. So I went in and um, they, they had a position in the um, financial advertising department and they wanted somebody who understood what tombstones were and uh, the various different terms. Um, and um, so I started there and uh, there I was a little bit unique in the Financial Times, uh, but um, uh, I learned a lot. Uh, it was a great experience, um, but again, it was dead men's shoes for me you know you had to wait I mean generally you had to wait for someone to die before you moved up and um, after six years I decided that wasn't for me anymore and um, I'd got a I really wanted to 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 sell and um, I, I then went to VNU publishing and started working on personal computer world magazine and that got me into technology which was really my my first foot in that area and when you grow up in a house where you know um, my father was a computer analyst. My brother was studying computer, computer um, uh, programming, etc. So, you know, we had the first Commodore PET. We had the first uh, uh, C64. We had those things at home before anybody knew what they were. Yeah. Um, so I had this affinity for it and um, uh, loved it working on PCW magazine. And then I got headhunted. Suddenly the phone started ringing. And um, one of those uh, calls was to go and run the PCW show. And that was my introduction into exhibitions. And I just loved it, working there, launching technology shows, 
first PCW, which was both business and um, uh, games computing. Um, and it was funny in those days to actually meet the guys who actually wrote the stuff. Um, you know, the, the, the guys who started all these companies like Electronic Arts and, uh, and I knew all these people personally because in those days they were just small one and two man companies. Um, and then um, I got uh, headhunted again to come to Germany to, well, I'd launched um, Macworld Expo, um, yeah. uh, Deckworld, uh, quite a few different vertical computing shows. And then I was headhunted to come to Germany for IDG um, to launch the Macworld Expo all over Europe. Um, and launching the company in Germany. We then launched Windows World for Microsoft. We did Sun World for Sun um, and various, um, you know, we saw niches. You had these um, mega computer shows like CBIT uh, running here and systems and nobody thought there was space for any anything else in the, in the computer world in, in, uh, in Germany. But we saw the niche for these, um, you know, for Mac, for Sun, etc. And, and that's what we did and quite successfully. And then I left them and uh, I became a consultant working with um, firstly with tech companies. And then um, my love of Harley Davidson dragged me into uh, motorbikes uh, and uh, running events for Harley Davidson across Europe. But I still had tech, you know, here in my head. And, um, and then I started doing some consulting for some companies who were just going onto the internet platform and had no idea what to do. Um, and uh, that was enjoyable. And um, one day, my old boss, the guy who dragged me to Germany, gave me a call. And he said, Mike, how are things? And he'd actually approached me many years before with various offers, and I'd always turned yeah. him down. He was, he was a headhunter now, and uh, he said, how are things? And I said, well, you know, it was a time when business was down. And I said, could be better. He said, oh, I've called you at the right time now. And um, I said, okay, what have you got? And he said, I've got three associations. They want to launch a new show uh, in Europe. Uh, Mike, this is tech. This is you. You know, this job is made for you, he said. I said, okay, send me the info. <laughs> and um, he sent me all the documentation. I went to the websites of uh, Cedia and uh, Infocom, as it was then, um, and NSCA. And I was looking and thinking, actually, this does look like fun. This is something I would enjoy. Yeah. And then... Um, I was interviewed. Um, well, actually, they, things there was a lot of discussion. Um, the, you know, the three executive directors uh, had decided they wanted to do this, and everything was sitting with the lawyers, and the lawyers were toing and froing, and it was taking ages. And um, uh, I said, okay, you know, I was waiting, and I um, I was then getting some new contracts for my consulting work, and one of them was going to coming up for renewal, and I thought, you know, I'll probably say. Uh, yes to renew this and then they'll call me and say okay we want you to start and so I called and um, I'd actually got an invitation to go to the US from my uncle to come and, for his birthday so I called and said look I'm going to be in the US anyway um, on this date if you um, want me to come up from Atlanta as it was then um, that's going to be a lot easier for all of us so I immediately got a phone call back saying yes please come and see us um, and uh, I flew up spent the day in Fairfax uh, being interviewed by everybody, and uh, I left, went back to the airport, got a call on my phone saying, Mike, the job's yours. And that was and, the start. And that was the start of IAC. Yeah. Um, so you obviously, there was it was 14, 15 years ago, right? 
that was um, when was that? Wow, I lose track of time. Um, that was two. That was um, March two thousand three. Okay. And the first ISD was when? Uh, was in January two thousand four. All right. So 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 yeah, seventeen eighteen years ago almost. Yes. Um. First ISC, uh, you and I have talked about this, and you said this, you know, was was modest, uh, but it was there, and it was a seat. It was there. It right. was, you know, everyone said, look, this has feet. This is something that we believe can develop into what we want. Uh, and all of the exhibitors who were there were unanimous about that, and they wanted to give it a chance. They said we'd done the right thing. It wasn't what they needed at that time, but it was a start. And... Um, you know, we got the support of all the exhibitors saying we want this to go on, we want to build it up, we believe, you know, we need this and we want to support it. Yeah. And uh, that was a great vote of confidence for everybody. I mean, it was a struggle to get it started. We had, uh, at that time, uh, there were a couple of shows in Germany um, that covered AV or tried to, and um, uh, most of the community here were really against, uh, they weren't supporting the show. Uh, I can recall one company, they're actually an exhibitor now, and he wrote a letter to me uh, saying, you're only going to get uh, Swiss farmers and, um, you know, people like that coming to this show. We're not going to support it. And, um, yeah. But the, the, the Swiss farmers, the first show was in Geneva. Correct, uh, yes. Switzerland, right? Uh, obviously, since then, you guys have, have – you didn't bounce around much. I mean, you, you – Amsterdam, uh, Brussels, um, uh, and then uh, this year, um, Barcelona. Yeah. And it was strange because we, um, you know, Geneva was a good start. It was just, it was just not, it was, you know, Geneva's in Europe, but it's not, it's not in the EU. So everyone had to import and export. And that was a big for, you know, for the Americans, it wasn't a problem. They had to do it anyway. But for everybody else in the rest of Europe, they complained about having to do all that paperwork. Yeah. Um, and um, so, you know, we went back and said, okay, Geneva's a challenge. We need somewhere. And we went around Europe, um, it was myself and Jason McGraw. We went to all the various venues uh, over a couple of weeks and met with everybody. And we came back and said, Amsterdam. Uh, and we had an option to go to Amsterdam the following year. And um, it really took off. The trouble was that the, the year afterwards, we couldn't get the venue. We couldn't get Amsterdam. So we chose Brussels for two reasons. One was it wasn't far away. And secondly, we were struggling with the French speaking audience, getting them to the show. And we felt a little step in Brussels could help us to build on that audience as well. And it did. Mm -hmm. And then we came back to, from, uh, to Amsterdam and we stayed there until now. Yeah. Um, walk me through and, and you, you pick whichever starting point you want. But walk me through from, you know, uh, Financial Times all the way through to, you know, the early days of ISE and even even the last few years. I have no doubt that you you faced challenges, right? Yeah. Um, and financial challenges, but also, you know, challenges, you know, cultural challenges and, and, and race related challenges. What sort of challenges did you face and, and, and how did you overcome those? Um, you know, one, one of the things I think, and, you know, I put a lot down to my mother and, um, and what she showed us and uh, the way she brought us up. Um, you know, they, they realized that education was the, the, the door opener. And um, both my parents said very clearly, as long as we're studying, they will financially support us and, and uh, make that happen. Um, but, 
and uh, and and that's what we did and uh, they did everything to help and make sure we had a good start um and you know the financial times was it was a great place to be um i think it was quite an open environment in terms of um you know uh, it certainly wasn't a racist uh, 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 organization in any way. They were very open, but you did notice the little uh, things that uh, maybe there were some opportunities that weren't there uh, for me. Um, and, you know, after a while you wonder, is that because of your color or is that because of your capabilities? And I've always, my mother brought me up to be very, to, you know, to always be confident about myself and, you know, after a while, you suddenly realize, okay, if this, if there's no opportunity for me here, then I will find it somewhere else. Yeah. And that's why I moved on from the financial times because the long-term future wasn't there for me. Um, and, but I'll tell you, I had a great time there. Uh, I learned a lot and it uh, put a lot of credit on my CV having that there as well. And um, the people I got to know while I was there was fantastic. Um, I had some very, very good managers while I was there uh, and uh, I enjoyed the time. Um, I still have a, a few friends there that we, we stay in touch, um, one or two people, uh, but most have moved to different places. Um, but then, you know, I moved on and I think the next job I went to was uh, at, at VNU where Everything was about your capabilities. Everything, I and mean, this was, I went into sales there. And, you know, they didn't care what color you were or where you came from. They just wanted you to sell and be successful and deliver. And as long as you did that, you were the king. And the good thing from that place as well was that everybody from outside looking for good salespeople used it as their hunting ground. Uh, it took a year and a half and then suddenly click the phones, you know, I'd be there late evenings and my phone would ring and first thing, and it'd be headhunters. And I was always shocked. How do you know who I am? You know, where do you have my number from? <laughs> and all these sort of things. And, um, but you know, they, they, they seem to have their ways and, uh, um, and it just became somewhere where you didn't care afterwards. It was a case of saying you've delivered, you've shown what you can do um and yeah it was a great place to uh, learn about uh, advertising sales and yeah. um you know getting getting in the limelight talk to someone who you know talk talk to an av professional talk to a tech talk to you know a salesperson um who may be going through some of these things right uh who may be you know having some sort of a bias what sort of advice would you give them uh as they as they work through you know, those struggles and those hurdles? I mean, first thing I think that, um, you know, most in most countries across Europe now, um, you know, that bias doesn't exist as much as it did before. Um, I think at the end of the day, if you are, if you're confident about yourself, then people will get confidence in you and they'll, they'll look past color if you're in the right organization. If they don't look past color, you're in the wrong organization. And there's, uh, you know, my advice to anybody, you know, if you find that as a problem in the organization you're in and you can't change it, then change yourself because, you know, it's not, it doesn't make any sense to, um, uh, if the higher up the, the management uh, uh, level is, is actually supporting something like that, then, you know, you have no future there and you're better off finding something where you are um, 
where you have a future, where you have the right sort of people around you. And there are plenty of companies like that in our business. Um, you know, I, I'd say the opposite is, the, is very much the exception. You know, I, I, I feel very, um, I feel very fortunate to be in the organization I'm in, um, you know, having both Celia and uh, Avixa, but particularly guys like Dave Labuskas, um, who, you know, support every opportunity, um, you know, for diversity, et cetera. Uh, and um, this, this just makes a difference. And I think when you seek out organizations like that, then you have a, a great future. Talk for a second, because uh, about your organization, though, um, Avixa and, and Cedia both co-own uh, integrated systems. Um, but but you're kind of the guy who put it together. Yes. Uh, you're you're the one who you were you were employee number one, and you can correct me on that if I'm wrong. That's correct. <laughs> and you you kind of built your team in the last 15, 16, 18 years. Yeah. How did you do it with you know um, to to create such a diverse workforce? Because you do. I mean, you you quite frankly you have you know um, from a, a gender standpoint as well as a as a race standpoint, you have a very diverse workforce. How did you do that? Our, our workforce, you know, it hasn't been done purposely. We've just looked for the right people. Now, when we started, I actually headhunted people who I chose. You know, the first few people we actually chose and brought them in. We have in each place also started programs for trainees and have actually been able to recruit people in that way as well. So there's been no um, focused effort to have such a diverse uh, group. And you know, if we look at it, uh, I think we, we actually have more women than men in our organization. Um, we, we have, uh, I think, seven or eight different nationalities um, in the organization. Uh, we have, um, we have uh, gay people. Um, we, you know, it's really mixed. And, we, you know, it's something I always have to think about, um, you know, who's in there, because we don't think like that. We think about we're a team and everybody is there to actually do their job and be part of that team and support the rest of the team. And that's how we do it. Um, you know, it's we're small enough that we can manage like that. And sometimes it's almost like a family. Uh, there are rows and disagreements sometimes, but we all come right. together and uh, we all hug each other and say, OK, you know, we got to we got to do this now. We're, we're all together. And uh um, and that's how we manage it. And um, it, it works for us. But I say we've never been, we've never gone out and say, oh, you know, we need another black guy, we need another woman, uh, we, we need a gay guy, or we need um, whatever, just to be diverse. Um, it's just happened because we found people who we've looked at their skills, we've looked at what they can do, and said they're right for the job we, we have. All right, there we go. That'll be a good place to stop. Mike Blackman, uh, Managing Director of ISE. Thank you, sir. How do people connect with you or Integrated Systems? So you can get me at mblackman, written together, at iseurope.org. So I-S-E-U-R-O-P-E.org. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at, um, at, um, at uh, ISE underscore Mike. Um, or you'll find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just Google me. 
All right. Very good. Mike Blackman from ISE. Thank you, sir. Uh, for us, for Aviation, go by our website, aviation.tv. That's aviation.tv. You'll find this program and a host of others, uh, including the rest of our interviews for uh, Black History Month. All that and more at aviation.tv. That's aviation.tv. 